Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of, of course, your favorite paranormal podcast called Paranormal Exposed. This is the evidence-based podcast that looks into various paranormal occurrences that happen here across the United States. I'm your host, Michelle, and while I am a skeptic by nature, I really do want to be a believer. I am both intrigued by the paranormal and open to the possibilities of what might be out there. So join me every Wednesday as I dive into a different paranormal topic and present to you what is real, what is not real, and what may just be in between. I will present both the historical facts as well as the paranormal reports, and we will see where the two meet. So join me in exposing the paranormal. This week's episode takes us to Gary, Indiana. And no, I am not covering the story of the murder capital of the United States or the birthplace of Michael Jackson. I am covering the 200 Demons House. I chose this story as I was kind of excited before I really got into the facts and everything about it. Is It's a current case. Um, it really went public in 2011, 2012. So I was like, okay, there has to be some really good evidence, some really good facts. I mean, back then, like, everybody had cell phones and things like that. And most of the stories I cover don't have that. So I was excited to do a story like this that was more recent. I was also really surprised that I had not heard of this. I mean, apparently it was quite the media sensation at the time. And I mean, I'm not a little kid. I'm kind of old now. So I'm just surprised that didn't kind of come on my radar. So I have a very short history on the 200 Demons House. And I'm going to get right into it after this about probably two minutes. So in 1926, the Demons House, as it would one day be known as, was built at 3860 Carolina Avenue in Gary, Indiana. The home was first occupied by a married couple who lived their entire lives in the home there. It wasn't a large home by any means, but was perfect for a newlywed couple as it was 864 square feet. It had two bedrooms, one bathroom, a living room, and a small kitchen. And off the kitchen, there were steps to a dirt floor basement that was unfinished, so it's not included in that 864 square feet but it was where they would be able to have washers and dryers, maybe store extra goods, things like that. And it was built on a double lot, so they had a good bit of property as well in case they wanted to have children or whatever the families might want. After the couple passed away, it was transitioned to a rental property where we're going to fast forward and go to the reports of the Ammons family. In November of 2011, LaToya Ammons moved into the home with her mother, Rosa Campbell, and their three children, ages 7, 9, and 12. The two younger children were boys, and the oldest was a girl. Right after they moved into the house, the reports happened right away. They reported that there were swarms of flies that would appear in the front porch area of the home, and it was entirely screened in, so they weren't sure how the flies would get here. And if you want to think about this, this is not normal for December in the Midwest. It would have been cold. There would have been snow, probably. It wouldn't have been warm enough for swarms of flies to be around. And they looked everywhere. They couldn't locate the source. No matter how many times they swatted the flies, more always came. 
this kind of reminds me if we go back to like the Amityville horror case, things like that. Flies are usually pretty common with demonic activity. The family then started hearing sounds that would emanate from the basement, including footsteps and sounds on the basement stairs, such as creaking and things of that nature. The door would also open and slam shut on its own. The daughter was said to have levitated above her bed and was then thrown across the room. She also claimed that she was grabbed by shadow people. The youngest son, he was reported by Ammons to have been thrown from the bathroom when there was no one else in the room. Rosa, who was Ammons' mother, was woken in the night to a shadowy figure standing in her room. And when she jumped out of bed, the figure vanished, but she found wet footprints on the ground. Now, the family was experiencing all these things going on, and they felt the cause of the issues was demons coming from under the basement stairs. So what Ammons did is she made an altar consisting of the statue of the Virgin Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, along with white candles and an incense holder. They thought this would help, but things weren't looking good for the Ammons at this point. The children were missing a lot of school due to all the activity keeping them up throughout the night, and they were becoming injured, things like that. So child services was actually called on Mrs. Ammons due to the children missing so much school. What Ammons claimed was that the spirits would make the children sick or keep them up all night, which caused them to miss so much school. She said if she put the kids in bed by 11 o'clock p.m., quote, the spirits would come out and keep them up all night throwing things, moving things, end quote. When child services did their investigation, they reported that both of the sons cursed at the examiner named Jeffrey Anikuwu. The seven-year-old son was lifted and thrown into the wall with no one touching him. And both boys during the interview lost consciousness and 911 had to be called and both of the boys had to be taken to the local Methodist hospital. When the boys awoke at the hospital, the nine-year-old was fine, but the seven-year-old son, he had to be restrained as he woke up in a screaming rage. Now, all of this seems pretty wild, doesn't it? I mean, we're just getting into the start of this. Per the reports from the hospital, they reported Ammons to child services on suspicion of neglect or child abuse after they got to the hospital. They speculated that LaToya Ammons suffered from a mental illness and that the children were performing for their mother. Valerie Washington was actually assigned to their case with the child services. She was investigating and per her report, the children were found to be healthy and free of marks and the mother of sound mind per the hospital. Valerie Washington interviewed the family at the hospital. And while interviewing them, the seven-year-old boy began growling. He then turned and started choking his brother until the staff actually had to separate the two boys. Washington then interviewed the kids with Nurse Willie Lee Walker and the grandmother Rosa present. 
The seven-year-old again began growling and turns to his brother, telling him in a lower, much different voice, quote, it's time to die. I will kill you, end quote. The nine-year-old brother had a grin on his face and is reported to have walked backwards up the wall to the ceiling. He then, from the ceiling, flipped over his grandmother Rose, never letting go of her hand. When questioned, the DCS investigator, Valerie Washington, reported he glided backwards on the floor and the wall, no running, no acrobatic tricks. The boy then sat in the chair a few minutes before appearing to come back to himself. The nurse and the DCS agent, Valerie Washington, ran out of the room. They called to the doctor to check things out, and when the doctor came in after being called, he asked him to walk up the wall again. But the boy, he didn't recall the event, and he couldn't duplicate it. The nurse thought that the boy was mentally ill, and Washington, the DCS agent, felt that something evil had to be involved. I mean, how does one walk backwards up a wall? Latoya. Ammons and her youngest son both stayed at the hospital, and the other two kids and the grandmother went to stay with some relatives. The next day, Child Protective Services took emergency custody of the children without a court order, stating, quote, all of the children were experiencing spiritual and emotional distress, end quote. On April 22nd of 2012, the hospital chaplain named David Neville called a local priest named Father Michael Maginot, who was a priest at St. Stephen's Church. David Neville, the hospital chaplain, asked Michael Maginot to perform an exorcism on the nine-year-old boy. That evening, Maginot went to the Ammons' house and interviewed the family. I mean, if you're familiar with exorcisms at all, it's not anything to be taken lightly. You can't just be like, hey, I want an exorcism. You have to go through tons of different things. You have to prove to the church that you require an exorcism. It's not easy. The grandmother, Rosa Campbell, during the interview pointed out that some of the light bulbs in the home would begin flickering. When the priest approached them, they would stop. Also, the blinds in the home would be flickering and moving back and forth when there was no wind or anything present that would cause this. The priest claimed this had to be due to some demonic presence in the home. Father Maginot also reported he saw wet footprints throughout the living room floor and Latoya began complaining of a headache. When Maginot touched the cross to her forehead, she actually began convulsing. The priest told the family that Ammons was possessed and that the home and her children were cursed due to a hex placed on her from someone else that she knew, possibly from an ex. He believed that in addition to this, there had to have been some tragedy or occult practices that were performed in the home prior to the Ammons family moving in. He stated that he thought these practices opened a portal to hell under the basement stairs in the home. 
Maginot also stated that there were ghosts in the home, but he went to go ahead and bless the house with holy water and prayed. But he told the family that they should leave the home, that it was not safe for them to be there. Maginot at this point did not see or interview the children, as remember, the two children were in foster care, and the youngest child, he was actually in the psych ward at the hospital. After the priests left, Latoya Ammons and her mother, Rosa Campbell, left the home and went to stay with family. And remember, they have at this point only been in the home for five months. A few days later, DCS agent Washington and two policemen, including Captain James Austin, met Ammons and Campbell at the home to investigate the claim. Campbell then told them that the demon seemed to come from under the basement stairs. When police investigated, they found multiple shrines throughout the basement and also Bibles throughout the home. What they found after their investigation is that the batteries in one of the officer's digital recorders was drained, though it had been fully charged. They also heard an EVP whispering, hey, and you out of here. There was a pictures taken on the basement stairs and the photo shows a cloudy image in it. Captain Austin also stated the radio in his car malfunctioned when he was leaving the scene and his garage door at home wouldn't open when he returned home. He also found that in his car, the seat of his car kept moving back and forth on its own without him hitting the button. In photos they took at the scene, they saw shadows, cloudy forms, and even an image of what looked like a person in the porch window. In April of 2012, Child Services asked the court to grant them temporary custody of the children because they weren't buying into the story of possession or demonic forces. The courts ended up granting custody to Child Services. Child Services began working with Ammons and told her that in order for her to get her kids back, she would have to not discuss demons or being possessed, she had to use discipline not related to religion, she had to find a job, and she had to find a new place to live. Till then, she could not get custody of her children, but would be granted supervised visits. The youngest child remained in the hospital for psychological evaluation, and the oldest son and daughter were sent to St. Joseph's Carmelite Home. They were both given psych evals by a psychologist named Joel Schwartz and a psychologist named Stacy Wright. Both of these evaluations were done separately. The psychologist Joel Schwartz, he stated that the daughter claimed to see shadowy figures throughout the house and had even gone into trance-like states. The older son claimed that doors would slam and stuff would start moving around the house. On May 10th of 2012, another investigation of the home was done. Present at the investigation were LaToya Ammons, Rosa Campbell, Captain Austin from the police department, Father Maginot, four other police officers, a police dog, and a new agent who had been assigned to the case for child services named Samantha Illick. 
And this was because Washington actually refused to re-enter the home, so they had to reassign the case. Per Samantha Illick's report, on the basement walls, she touched a substance with her pinky finger. When she touched it, she found that it was really slippery, yet kind of sticky at the same time. As soon as she touched it, her pinky finger felt really tingly, went white, and then actually felt like it had been broken. After 10 minutes in the home, she had a panic attack and had to actually exit the house. During the investigation, police found more of the oily substance on the window blinds in one of the bedrooms. So to kind of test what was going on, they cleaned it off of the blinds, locked the door, and continued their investigation. When they went back later on to the room, the substance was back. And Maginot, when he saw it, he stated it had to be demonic possession. The police then proceeded to go ahead and investigate the basement where Ammon stated she felt that the cause of the demons were coming from there. This is also according to Maginot, who felt that this was where the portal to hell was. The police proceeded to dig a four-foot by three-foot hole under the stairs at the request of Father Maginot. In the hole, they found an assortment of random items. They found a pink press-on acrylic nail. They found a pair of women's underwear, a shirt pin, the top of a cooking pan, candy wrappers, socks with the bottoms cut off of them, and a small metal weight. Nothing too crazy, but, you know, a little strange to find it there. They then covered the hole, and Maginot proceeded to spread blessed salt under the basement stairs and throughout the basement. When asked questions, Ammons would complain of having a headache as well as shoulder pain and had to leave the home again. Maginot ended up performing three exorcisms on LaToya. The first two were not sanctioned by the church, but the last one was sanctioned by the local bishop of the church. After the second exorcism, Rosa and LaToya moved into a new home. During the third exorcism, LaToya began convulsing when the demons were condemned, but not when they were praying. The demons were cast out as Maginot was able to name them after Latoya looked their names up online. Though she struggled as the internet actually kept shutting down when she tried to figure out what the demons' names were. Kind of like saying, hey Google, what demons haunt me? I'm not sure how you would look that up, but apparently that's where the names came from. The names of who the demons were were never released, as Maginot apparently does not want to release them in case it gives them power. When casting the demons out, he held a cross to LaToya's forehead while she convulsed. LaToya stated that it felt more painful than giving birth. After the third exorcism, which was performed in Latin, LaToya reported that she had no further demonic issues and she feels that the sanctioning from the church made this third exorcism more powerful. In November of 2012, she was finally granted custody of the children with the supervision of child services. In February of 2013, the case was finally closed with child services. 
After the final exorcism, the family maintained residence in Indianapolis, Indiana. Ammons maintains a full-time job as per court order. After Ammons had moved out, the landlord, Charles Reed, continued to rent out the home to new renters. Though new tenants had a difficult time as curious trespassers would come by, police cars would drive by, there was reporters, tourists. So the renters didn't always want to stay that long. They tried to keep out of the public eye. On January 28th of 2014, the Ammons family story went public. On February 4th of 2014, the property was sold to Zach Baggins for $35,000 after the story went public. For those of you who are not familiar with Zach Baggins, he is the host of the show Ghost Adventures on the Travel Channel. Um, not going to really say how would I think about Zach Baggins, but he is the one who bought it. On February 21st of 2014, Zach Baggins began filming his movie in the home. This movie was going to be a documentary pretty much based on the Ammons' experiences in the house. In February 2016, after he had owned it for about two years, Baggins had finished filming his documentary. After he finished filming it, he demolished the home as he stated he didn't want it to be able to hurt anyone anymore. He reports this was because while he was filming it, in addition to Ammon's claims, he stated that he himself experienced personality changes, people on the crew did not want to work with him anymore, and he even became inflicted with a condition where he now has to wear special glasses for the rest of his life. Those are the haunting reports of what happened up until the home was demolished. And now I'm going to do a little bit of fact-checking and kind of go through some of the things that were said and kind of clear things up a little bit. So from 1926 to 2011, as well as after the Ammons family left, there were not any reports or signs of a haunting in the home from any tenants. The only people who claimed it was haunted in the 80-plus years that the home existed was the Ammons family and the host of a ghost adventure show who was filming a documentary on a haunted show. Now, you might wonder how I know a lot of the facts above and the clarifications I will be releasing below. Well, LaToya actually signed a release giving the Indianapolis Star newspaper access to her family's medical, social, and psychological records. So a lot of this was made to the public, which is how I can have all the access to the child services records, what happened at the hospital, and things like that. So as far as the haunted reports and things that were said, I'm going to go through them one by one. First, I'm going to go to the sounds on the basement stairs and the doors opening and closing on their own. So if you have never lived in an older home, doors opening on their own or closing on their own isn't that much out of the realm of possibility. I lived in many old homes. One of the homes I lived in was well over 100 years old. Doors don't line up very easily. Houses are very uneven. I would close a door and 10 minutes later it would pop open again. Or when the heat would kick on, it would slam a door. It's not 
unheard of. Also, old houses are very creaky. So hearing creaking on old wooden steps in a basement, again, not strange, um, especially depending on the time of year. Things are settling. And yeah, it's a creepy basement, partially dirt floor. It, you know, kind of creeps people out. And as far as the wet boot prints, Per Rosa, she saw them when she jumped out of bed in the middle of the night after she had seen a shadowy figure. But per Father Maginot's earlier report, the prints weren't found until the next morning and they were in the living room, not the bedroom, and they were not muddy, they were just wet. Either these footprints didn't exist, there was someone else in the house, maybe someone was having a walking dream, but how could two people have the same report in totally different rooms and at totally different times? And now I'm going to go to the poltergeist activity keeping the children up. The children were very physical per report. Child services stated that the children would fight one another, they would be abusive towards one another, and they would even pass out. If the children were so aggressive, wouldn't it be possible that they would throw things around in their room at night and blame it on a ghost? I mean, what kid doesn't want to get out of school? Plus, whenever they misbehaved like this or pretended to be possessed or whatever it might be, they got a lot of attention from the adults around them. Also, as a side note, in 2009, about two years before this, LaToya was investigated and found to be negligent with the children for not sending them to school. At that point in 2009, there were no reports of demons being the issue, so the not taking the kids to school was a recurring issue before the reports. One of the Ammons children also reportedly stated that he could talk to one of the ghosts, who was the ghost of a dead boy. Per report from the medical professional in Child Services Report, the child reported that there was actually thousands of ghosts in the home and that he could see them but not talk to them. But then, after his mother says he can tell the child services agents the truth, he said he does talk to them. So this also led the professionals to even further believe that the kids were performing for their mother and her behavior would reward them for saying things like this. Now you could say, okay, maybe you can explain that, but what about the boy gliding backwards up a wall to the ceiling and flipping over? Pretty crazy, right? Well, the hospital staff has a different report than what Washington stated. What it is stated for the hospital reports is the boy put one foot and then the other on the wall, but was supported by his grandmother's hands and arms the whole time. The child services agent Valerie Washington stated he held onto Rosa's one hand. Latoya Ammons, though, and the hospital staff reported that he held onto both hands. One thing I would say with this is she released all ability for the hospital to turn over records and everything to the Indianapolis Star. What about the hospital footage? There would have been cameras in these rooms. How was this not captured on camera that we could see it? I just, and no one took pictures of this. It just seems a little odd for me. But it's definitely plausible that if he had something to hold on to and he walked up slowly, 
you know, he was a young kid. He could have been able to do this. Then there is the report of the policeman's car seat moving on its own. He actually ended up taking his car to the dealership, and it was found that there was a mechanical issue, and the seat motor was simply broken. So, I mean, I guess the demons could have broke it, but this is the only report with an issue being with a car. Captain Austin, he claimed to believe the events highly with what they found. Before entering, though, Captain Austin was reportedly already a big believer in the supernatural to begin with. And when they were doing an investigation of the home, they actually went on almost like a ghost investigation thing, not trying to prove otherwise. I mean, it's kind of like watching a Ghost Hunters episode. They took their recorders in, were listening for EVPs, all that kind of stuff. Also, per the Indianapolis Star, he expected notoriety and felt that a movie deal would be coming from this, which you'll hear more about that that is actually happening. The photos. The photos that the police take. The images showing the purported image of the person in the window was said to be taken by the police, but in fact, no one knows where this photo came from and if it was possibly edited. The other photos were taken by the police, but are a bit of a reach to say that they might have a ghost in them. Um, it just looks like how they might have been taken, the light, and things like that. But I will post them on social media so you can check for yourself. But the only photo that actually shows a prominent ghost-like figure is not from the police pictures, no one knows where it came from, and it kind of looks like one that you would do on one of those ghost editing apps. And what about the police EVPs? Well, the two phrases that were heard, these were taken on regular tape recorders. EVPs usually require a little bit more specialized recording devices, but, you know, tape recorders can be used. And while I did listen to them, it actually sounds like someone was taking a breath in very near the recorder versus someone saying, hey, a little bit of a difference. Then there are the reports of the children. And here is what psychologists found when they examined the older son and the daughter. They found that the son was logical and clear, except when talking about demons. Also, when they challenged him or asked him something that he didn't want to respond to, he would begin acting possessed or he would try and change the subject altogether. When in this state, his stories would not make sense and would become very bizarre and would change each time he repeated them. Psychologists found that the boy did not actually suffer from a psychological condition, but stated he seemed to be suffering from delusions perpetuated and reinforced by LaToya Ammons. This fits with the narrative as none of the children were ever given an exorcism or even met with a priest. The priest said only LaToya was actually possessed by the spirits and would jump to her kids from her. The priest stated this was proof as when possessions happened, she was around, such as with the son walking up the hospital wall. But, per psychology reports, the kids acted possessed in sessions when the mother was not around. This included during psychological evaluations. What about the voice changes? Well, 
I feel like we can all do that. The kids then being thrown around and such, like the reports of the one son being thrown out of the bathroom, things like that. Well, has anybody ever watched the movie Fight Club? I think Edward Norton did a pretty good job with showing that that can be done. If you haven't seen it, recommend the movie. It's pretty intriguing. But if someone really wants to do it, it's not easy, but you can throw yourself around, make things look like you're being, you know, possessed. And while we have a hard time imagining doing it, again, it can be done. Then there was the story of the daughter levitating in the room and being thrown around. Well, the story with this actually changed multiple times. It was from a prolonged levitation to LaToya Ammon stating that she watched a demon attack her daughter, raise her off the bed, and then snatch her off the bed. LaToya was evaluated by psychologists as well. And they stated that she did not seem to be suffering from any psychotic condition. But they stated that she was very religious and highly superstitious. She believed in entities and regularly consulted clairvoyants. One of the unnamed clairvoyants that she spoke with told her that her house was filled with 200 demons, which is how she knew for a fact that the home was possessed. And this is how the home got its name as the 200 Demons House. She also stated that someone had died in the home, which is why the demons and spirits possessed it. She stated she had taken the kids to various temples and churches to remove the demon. Psychologists felt that her religious beliefs may be masking delusions and perceptual disturbances. During child services discharge, they stated the family no longer fixated on religion to cope with the children's behavioral issues. As far as LaToya's possession, remember, this was a hex or a curse that was said to have been placed on her from an ex-boyfriend or something like that. Usually, this doesn't result, though, in possession. Usually, you're cursed in other ways. Now, as far as the occult practices there, there is no evidence of this. There are no haunted reports before or after, and the house has always been occupied by families or renters before and after Ammons moved in. And what about a tragedy or a death? All I could find is possibly the original married couple might have passed in a home, though I doubt their passing would open a portal to hell or become demonic presences. LaToya's stepmother, after the story went public, reached out to the Chicago Post. She reported that the stories are not true and that LaToya was making it all up. But I don't know her relationship with her stepmother. Maybe it wasn't a healthy one and she was just kind of reaching out to kind of put a damper on LaToya's story. Ammon's landlord, Charles Reed, stated again, there is no reports of paranormal activity prior to or after Ammon's living in the home. The only other report, again, is that from Zach Baggins. In February 6, 2014, Father Maginot signed a movie deal with Evergreen Media Holdings, the company that produced The Conjuring and other movies. Per Maginot, he signed on as he felt they wouldn't sensationalize the case. Yes, 
the Conjuring movie universe would not sensationalize a case. I'll leave it at that. Maginot also signed a contract with Zach Baggins to work on his documentary. Baggins had cameras rolling in the house for two years per him, and he had no evidence of anything moving in the home. He said that he worried about people being hurt, so that is why he demolished it. But he wasn't worried enough that he destroyed the whole house. What he did is he kept the basement stairs from the home, the basement door where all the haunted things were said to have been coming from. He dug up some of the dirt from under the stairs and kept all of the items from under the stairs. And what did he do with these items? Well, of course, he displays them in his Las Vegas museum. I feel like if you were that worried about a home being possessed and being hurtful to people, why are you keeping the items that came out of this house? It's likely he demolished the house so that the movie company, that Evergreen Media Holdings, couldn't use the house and make their own movie. With this being such a current case, this happened in 2011 to 2012, kind of went public in 2014, why are there no photos? I mean, again, cell phone cameras were a thing. Digital cameras were really popular at this time. And heck, the iPhone has had a camera since 2007. If they didn't have a cell phone with a camera, they probably had at least some kind of camera, whether it be disposable or what. And where are the pictures from the family? Where are the pictures from child services? Where are the pictures from the hospital? There is nothing. And at the end of the day, though, it just seems like this was a very dysfunctional family. And while I do believe that Ammons believed with her heart that there was a demonic possession, I'm not sure that she would have done this to get media sensationalized attention or anything like that. I just feel like her religious beliefs really kind of took over and made things more than they were. And this affects children. And especially at such young ages, they're really impressionable. And her beliefs might have kind of made that impression on them. Those are my thoughts and all the facts on the 200 Demons House. I would love to hear your thoughts on whether you think the 200 Demons House is haunted or not. Maybe you've been able to kind of see the house before it was torn down. Maybe you were able to watch the Zach Baggins documentary. I will admit I could not stomach it. Maybe you have just some other facts of the house you'd like to share. I'd also love to hear your feedback on if you enjoyed this episode or suggestions you may have for a future episode. So make sure you tune in every Wednesday wherever you tune in. And don't forget to leave a review. I'd recommend a five-star review if you enjoyed it, and follow this podcast so you know as soon as the new episode is ready. You can also follow on social media for more information on this, future, and past episodes, including pictures, links, photos, and much more. Also follow the podcast social media for more information on past, future, and present episodes, including pictures, links, and much, much more. You can follow on Instagram at The Paranormal Truth, on Facebook at Paranormal Exposed, Or you can always shoot an email to paranormalexposedpodcast at gmail.com. Again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will catch you all next Wednesday.